I couldn't resist it. When I saw Risk Revenue, I said, oh, fools will take chances. That's Johnny Gosey, 1959 on MOA, MOA 1001. There's no reason to believe there was a 1002. He was accompanied by Alex Jones and the Nighthawks. That was Alex Snook Jones, Shreveport piano player, extraordinaire and vocalist. And that was actually a B-side. And the label wasn't good at details because on one side it calls him John Gosey, on the other side it calls him Johnny. Uh, Yeah, the A-side is terrible, by the way. But I thought Fools Will Take Chances was a terrific record. I'm Raleigh James at WGN Radio, and we're talking about risk and reward at a time like this of uncertainty. And we welcome Wayne Pinello. Hey, Wayne, how are you? Just wonderful this evening, Raleigh. So thrilled to be on your show. It's a pleasure to meet you. Well, thank you. Now, I find you. By the way, I should mention you're the co-author of "Risk Is an Asset: Turning Commodity Price Uncertainty into Strategic Advantage," and it's a great read. I've, uh, you know, when I first looked at it, I thought I'm going to get through this, but actually, I, uh, I loved some of the things, such as the difference between risk and gambling, which we'll we'll get to, and the, the coin toss. So it's it's well done. Now, uh, interesting. One of my other jobs is doing afternoon news somewhere, not in Chicago. And one of the things I have to do is the stock market report every day. And I know absolutely nothing about this. However, I did notice a couple months ago now that crude oil was down to nothing a barrel. It said zero. And I thought, this is the time to buy it. And then I realized I didn't even know what it really was. So with things like that, when crude drops to nothing, I assume they weren't giving giving it away. What does that mean? Well, that was an aberration or an artifact of some poor planning on the part of the exchange and uh, certain investment funds that are involved in the exchange. So the thing about the futures world, and many of your Chicago viewers know what commodity futures are. You are at the the throbbing center of commodity trading in the world there. Chicago Board of Um, Trade, yes. That's right, by the Board of Trade and the Chicago Mercury's there. Mm-hmm. And and so um, all of these contracts, futures, are traded with physical delivery specifications, but generally speaking, fewer than 1% of the contracts that trade hands over the life of a particular issue, which let's just say um, in the, the one you're talking about happened to be the May futures contract for crude, mm. um, <clears throat> that that contract is going to stop trading on a certain day. And it's sort of like musical chairs. If you still have that contract on the day the music stops playing, you're either going to have to make delivery or take delivery. And very few market participants have the resources to do that. So most of the time, and I mean for a century now, you know, people that were speculating in these markets knew to get out ahead of time so they didn't find themselves on the last day forced to make or take delivery. And and if you fail to do that, the penalties are huge. They're way in excess of what anybody would consider to be reasonable. So there are huge penalties for not being able to do that. And in this particular case, the penalties must have exceeded $37 a barrel. Right. Because the price actually settled at minus $37 a barrel that day. Now, very few contracts traded there. Um, and the people that were taking physical delivery of those contracts obviously hit it out of the park because they they made an awful lot of money because the oil very quickly went back to $20 a barrel. Yeah. So they're making $57 a barrel in. Um, so the, the make, to try to summarize this for your viewers, there was a large fund where individuals would buy shares in this fund, and the fund would be persistently long crude oil futures, and their responsibility was to, as those contracts matured, to roll them into 
forward or contracts with a later expiry date before something like this happened, then they got caught this time. Well, so let's say I saw this and was going to act on it. Now, I, I didn't, by the way, one, I didn't know what I was doing. The other thing is I thought, oh, my God, what if I actually have to take delivery of something? But uh, how, would you, how would you buy that or could you buy it when it's down to zero a barrel? Unless you're a regular participant in the market and in the position to take physical volumes, you couldn't. Okay. You couldn't participate in that price right. at all. That, that's, like I said, it was an aberration in the market. It's um, there are very sophisticated and talented people that that invest huge amounts of money in trading physical molecules and then managing the risk around those physical molecules with those futures products. And when they see an imbalance, like the one that occurred on that particular expiry. Um, there's an opportunity for a very limited number of participants to take advantage of that. And you already have the position, and you already have to be a, a major player in the industry to have the resources available to do that. Now, of course, obviously, like you say, there were some very bright people who did not expect this to happen, clearly, and and yet it did. So in, uh, in your uh, career doing this, and I know you started out really uh, going to be a research scientist, oceanography, so clearly uh, you know numbers and all that. Is there anything that ever surprised you to that extent where you said, man, this is going to do really well or really badly, and it was just the opposite? Well, I did read a piece just um, two days ago, I guess. Yeah, it must have been Monday morning, where um, the CFTC is investigating the a certain trading group out of London, and um, and apparently the exchange did warn its participants that prices could go negative about a week ahead of it actually happening. Now, I never saw that notice, and I only, I'm telling you from memory, from what I read and what I'm almost certain was a Wall Street Journal article. But, um, so, I think that the smart money knew it was possible, and in an orderly market, I I think that everyone would have expected participants to get out, but, you know, if, if, if you are in a position, and I used to work for, just to update your viewers, I was a floor trader for 10 years, yeah. local, as you would call it, trading my own account. Then I worked for major international oil companies, um, not the big majors, but large trading companies. Mm-hmm. And and we used to keep tabs on, on what positions were and what everybody was doing, and we'd watch um, to the best that we could. I mean, it, uh, order flow so we could get a sense of who wasn't managing their position properly. And... You know, if we smelled an opportunity, we took advantage of it. And this firm that was uh, referenced in the Wall Street Journal article probably saw that opportunity, and they said, you know, I'll roll the dice on this one, see what happens, and they got very lucky. Yeah. Now, your philosophy, and it's on your website, independent, unbiased, statistically driven, uh, that, of course, sounds terrific. But in your career, have, have you ever gone through any uh, investment where statistically it looked like this was gangbusters and it turned out, no, it wasn't? Oh, of course. But that's why you, you have to frame the, the risk-reward opportunity. And which means you have to measure the risk in a way that's meaningful to you. And what I mean by that, uh, just to give a, a broader example, uh, we all save money in a savings account for an unexpected expense, which we really can't know how much that might be, or perhaps losing our job, we might not be able to, you know, pay our mortgage or our rent for a few months 
before we are worried about really needing to get another job, right? So we measure what goes into those accounts in dollars. That's what we put in them. But the utility, the utility of that account is how big a problem can I handle? How long can I be without my job and still pay my mortgage? Mm -hmm. And so we need to think about the risk around a, in a, a particular investment in a way that's meaningful and, and, and a, to the way we manage our lives and the risk that we're willing to take. And, and so there have been lots of things that I sure, thought were a sure winner. And if I had over bet, you know, uh, I think the example in the book that you, you might be referring to is you have a coin toss, you know, you, you, you win, you win two, you lose, you lose one. Who wouldn't want to do that on a 50-50 proposition? But if you have to do it with everything you own on one flip, that would be insane. Right. Right. Exa exactly. Now, you mentioned risk, and of course, you also are elucidating in the book the difference between risk and gambling, because a lot of people look at risk and say, well, I'm not gambling on the market, so tell me the difference. Well, the people saying that are probably looking at it exactly the right way, and they'll understand that I'm saying this with all due respect, because if, if you roll the dice and have no concept of how they're going to come out, and you have no control, you can't manage it, then that, that's absolutely a gamble. Now, you may like the odds of that gamble, but that is a gamble. If, on the other hand, there are things that, that you can do to mitigate that risk, and um, and so you know this coin toss that I was talking about a second ago, where you win, you win two, you lose, you lose one. Well, you know if you do that enough, you're going to make money at some point. So you have to make sure that you bet small enough so that you can bet often enough so that you get the expected value of the trade. That is, you get the average that we expect to happen over a long period of time. <clears throat> and but if you go to a casino by way of contrast. You know that no matter how many times you bet, the casino has the edge. And the more you bet, the more likely they are to win. So that's definitely a gamble. You're just doing it for fun. Right, right, because they're not building those big, pretty hotels on our, on our winnings. So it's... <laughs> right, and, and, and so I'm not a big gambler, but you know, my attitude is if I go to the casino for a night and I have a great evening of entertainment and I think the cost of that entertainment is reasonable as I see it, then, then I've managed my risk. And and I got value out of that. Even though I even though I walked away having paid them money, I was entertained for the for the time I was there. I had a good time, and 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 so I managed that risk in a way that made it work for me. Right, right. Like I think it's the old Ben Graham quote: uh, "Price is what you pay, value is what you get." So uh, exactly, yeah. And that, that's very good. <laughs> yeah, I've I've always thought that was one. And I, I think uh, I think Buffett said it more recently. People are attributed to him. I'm like, no, you got to go back a little further than that. But one of the things that we traditionally thought were people who were in great fiduciary responsibility positions, such as insurance companies or pension funds, where they couldn't really go onto anything that would be terribly risky. And then, of course, the quote-unquote safe investments, uh, things like uh, uh, rate of return on interest and stuff, went so low that these companies couldn't pay out in the event of a problem. And so they've had to get increasingly, you know, quote-unquote, riskier. Uh, in some cases, like Orange County years ago, that was a little disaster for Bob Citrone. But in other cases, it seems to be working out. Where are we now with people who are heavily into fiduciary responsibility, yet they're managing it with quite a bit of risk? Well, that's a really great question. 
because since 2008, the Fed has done everything it could to keep interest rates close to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm maybe speaking out of the box a little bit here, but almost every Federal Reserve chair and most central bank um, heads of central banks across the globe all studied at MIT under Paul Samuelson, mm-hmm. and so they're all following the same model. And they all believe that they are the great and powerful Oz, and with dials and levers, they can control the economy, and it will never have a hiccup. <laughs> the great risk that they're taking is that if they get that wrong, when it come, when the wheels fall off, it's going to fall off of everything at the same time. Instead of allowing the economy to have little bumps in the road and make lots of small corrections, they're they're betting the ranch that they can do it right, and it's pretty scary. It is, and so yes. Yeah, it is tremendously scary. And yes, 2008, well, I've got a story about that, and I know you've got a lot of stories. Wayne Pinello, RiskRevenue.com. Wayne is the president and founder of Risk Revenue Energy Associates and the co-author of Risk is an Asset, Turning Commodity Price Uncertainty into Strategic Advantage. Got a few questions? Oh, I've got many, but I'll always make room for you. 888-876-5593. It's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. I'd gladly start again if I had another find any doo-wop with risked in it. I'm sure it's there, but I took chance, and that's the uh, Fabuliers, uh, if I had another chance, and that was on Kenco in 1959, and I know absolutely nothing about them other than I know it was a B-side, because I can tell by the numbering, but, you know, who they are. Now, Kenco was a New York label for about a minute in 1957, so I guess maybe that's a clue. I'm Raleigh James. It is WGN Radio. You can join us, 888-876-5593. We're talking to Wayne Pinello. Riskrevenue.com is the website. And it's interesting. I was doing a show in 2008 in on XM, actually, and... I had said, it's all going to hell in a handbasket in September. And, I mean, when that happened, everybody thought I was just the the greatest. And they said, how'd you know that? I said, I just read the documents from the Bank of International Settlements that said that's when the the rules went into effect. And it seemed to me that that was probably more of a precipitator than anything else. Or was I just lucky? Wait. That's a question for me? Yes, it is. <laughs> it, it is. Long. I'll tell you, um, having been involved in in trading for 40 years now, I there's a huge school of, called fundamental analysis where people try to look at all the information available and say, that's the piece that's important. I do it completely the opposite. What I do is I use mathematics to characterize the market and say, okay, what is normal now? And, and 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 so what is the range of things I might expect? And when the market does something differently than what the math would tell me, then I know where and when to look, and I pretty much can figure out what I'm looking for. And and if you any of your viewers are stock 
or commodity traders, um, but particularly stock, I'd like to, at that period of time, you know, Lehman Brothers went down. Uh-huh. And everyone was like, oh, my surprise, Lehman Brothers blew up. Well, if you can pull up an old Lehman Brothers stock chart, uh-huh. you will see year prior to the day it blew up it, in a death spiral. Uh-huh. Every week it made lower lows. And, um, and so the market does have tells, and you just need to be objective and look for them. And part of that is uh, um, organizing the data the right way talk about it in the book a little bit, because if you look at two shoots of time, noise, dealing with the data in the world, also dealing with noise, because markets are what we call chaotic systems. Mm-hmm. So everyone just taught math, and we're all familiar with the very smooth bell-shaped curve. That's a normal system. <clears throat> if you will, for example, a, a chaotic system is really a series of those bell-shaped systems, so it'll be in that little bell-shaped area for a while, and then it'll abruptly move to a new value zone and develop a new bell-shaped area. In fact, there's a very famous trader from Chicago, Peter Stottlemyre, who founded, um, I think it ultimately morphed into something called capital market software, but, but, but he developed a technique for identifying these units of normalcy and then um, redistributions to an area of a numerous normalcy that he called development. And so in that moment, um, I think that the changes in the banking rules were important, but we don't always know how people are going to react. If people still believe in the system, they may not change their buying or selling habits. But in that particular case, once the market started persistently taking out um, the prior week's lows, then that, that's a that's a real important sign in commodities and in and in stocks when you consistently take out the prior month's lows that's an important sign and and I use those two points because if you think about the universe of people that trade now we have nano traders and which are computers and we have short term traders and day traders we've all heard of these people that you know they all claim to make a lot of money and I'm sure they do sometimes but what's interesting about futures markets is that every Friday. In the futures market, all those short-term traders, they flatten their books. They don't want the risk from Friday to Monday. So the only money, only people that stay in the market over the weekend are in futures long-term traders. And, and the change from Friday to Friday is a very important indicator of whether capital is flowing into the market, people are buying it, or flowing out of it, people are selling it. In stocks, um, that metric is better served using monthly data because of the nature of stock traders. They're much longer time horizon traders. Stocks don't, they're not quite as volatile as commodity and for some other reasons. But these, these, using these cues to identify when and where I should look for opportunity or trouble, uh, I found to be very helpful. And then, and then you go to the, the, the rags and the Wall Street Journal. And it, and it may not be that their analysis is, is right, but if everybody believes it's right, that's what counts. Well, of course. Uh, absolutely, this to a good degree is, is a confidence game, and you can see that with uh, with some of the some of the moves. But it's very interesting that you talk about traders who uh, you know are going to exit on Friday and come back on Monday. It reminds me of book, bookies laying off bets. You know, it goes right back to uh, uh, to the gambling analogy, and uh, that. So I think a lot of people who aren't maybe on the inner in the inner circle, uh, they're uh, they're they're taking the cues from what they hear, like you say, whether it's the rags or 
or whether it's somebody else who has their YouTube video or, or whatever. And right now what you've got, you've got, and it's funny to watch the videos. I don't know if you spend any time on this, but you've got the uh, uh, the doomsday, it's all going to hell, forget it, it's all over, head for the hills. And other people, oh no, it's the best thing in the world. And there aren't many people making videos somewhere in the middle. But what I found interesting is lately I've heard more of the doomsayers than I have of the people. It's great. And then I look today and the Dow's at over 27,000 and the NASDAQ is flirting with 11,000. And I'm saying, well, so much for this. So when you see these talking heads who are predicting doom and gloom, what are they basing it on? Well, I'm sure they all mean well and they all have these methodologies that have worked for them. And just because they worked for the last 10 years doesn't mean that they're any good. They might have just been lucky for the last 10 years. And, and, uh, but those people are in the business of selling subscriptions. They're not really in the business of guessing right. I work for companies that trade large amounts of money and they paid for information so that they had the edge. You know, I'm sure it was Buffett who said that if you're playing poker and you don't know who the mullet is, you're it. You're right. And, and, and so you, you have to be convinced that you have better information than everybody else to, to make some of these decisions. And, um, and the people that are out there prognosticating and saying, you know, this is what's going to happen and for these reasons, um, I'm sure they have the best of intentions, but, um, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Nobody. And, you know, in this particular case, you tell me when the Fed is going to stop propping up the equities markets and stop buying junk bond debt from, you know, yeah. publicly traded companies. I mean, I, I never thought the Fed would be in that business, and I certainly didn't think they should be in that business. And one of the things that almost nobody noticed is that when COVID-19 first hit, the overnight money market fund basically went belly up. It, the liquidity dried up, and the Fed had to step in and save it. And they hushed that completely because they didn't want to lose consumer confidence in the markets. Right. But the Fed has a huge hand in stabilizing this. And and so we all have friends that are in the market and say, we're good, it's going higher. You know, it, don't for a second think they know anything because they don't. And if they're not honest to themselves, they're going to get caught in the downdraft. When should that ever happen? But <clears throat> as long as the Fed keeps doing the kinds of things they're doing, there is reason to believe that there will be stability in the market. Unfortunately, you know, this, you know, actually as recently as September, we only had 17 trillion, and I say only, sort of mockingly, only had 17 trillion dollars in, in federal deficit, right? Now we have 24 trillion dollars in federal deficit. So what's going to happen to the U.S. currency as the benchmark currency across the globe? We've already seen in the last two months it's eroded in value about 8%. And what are the implications of that as we go forward? Yeah, that that is a biggie. And it's interesting to note that uh, that gold is starting to move upward, which it really hadn't for a long time. And I often wondered, was gold stagnant for so long because of, again, investors, paper investors, uh, who were keeping it at a certain level? Because it would have seemed to me that it should have risen, and now it's starting to rise. What What's going on? Well, gold is interesting commodity because it is not very liquid. And so if the smart money, which is trillions and trillions of dollars, decide that they need to diversify into gold and they start buying it, I mean, we, you remember gold in, uh, in 1979, 1980, um, I don't remember exactly where it started, 
but I know that when, I guess it was Nixon mm-hmm. that took us off the gold standard, and yes. gold was about $100 an ounce then, and then just four years later, it got to over $800 an ounce. Right. It was actually less and, than and that. And the gold... A lot less than 100 you probably... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, in 2011, gold peaked at, as it turns out, $1,911. Sold off from there down to about just over a thousand, and stayed between a thousand and fourteen hundred for three or four years. And then the last three years was able to rally back up, and it was just two weeks ago that it was testing that 1900 level. Mm-hmm. And before we got on the show, I took a quick look today. I I think it's trading two thousand and thirty-six dollars as mm-hmm. we speak. Yeah, that's about what that's about what I saw. I was also surprised that silver is up over twenty six dollars an ounce because that's quite a jump for silver. That's uh, surprising. In in fact, in, I, I'm almost certain in a, in a percentage basis, it's much more because people are banking on the fact that it has a commercial utility, so it's got a double use. It's a, a safe security, and I can always sell it to somebody who needs to produce a computer or something. It's interesting because, as you know, platinum has been really depressed compared to gold in the last several years, which didn't used to be the way that worked. And I always figured that platinum was down because it is a manufacturing metal, and it was sort of indicative that we're not manufacturing on those rates anymore. Is that wrong? I would have to defer to my co-author, Andy Furman, on that. Okay because he used to be a platinum trader in the pits, but I wonder, you know, remember for a long time, platinum was a key component in catalytic converters? Yes. And then we, and then we cleaned up gasoline? Yeah. I'm not sure that we use platinum in catalytic converters anymore. If we don't, that, that might be a thought. That'd be, that'd be something I'd have to check into. Right. I mean, we're brainstorming here. I don't have the answer. Yeah, I figure it had to be manufacturing because, it, you know, the other use, of course, is it's jewelry, it's beautiful, all that. But that wasn't, that clearly wasn't, wasn't driving it. The thing that surprised me when I first read it years ago was that more gold trades every day in various forms than exists on the planet. And so when you consider that type of trade, I figured that had an impact on price as well. What do you think? Well, that is the to me that's an indicator of a healthy market because um, you know when you take oil for example, you know oil can easily trade um, three hundred and fifty contracts a day. I mean, it's basically oil can trade two to four times the amount of oil it's actually consumed every day in the world, and uh, and the reason it does that is that as it gets, I mean, you think about the supply chain. The, the, how intricate it is and ultimately how small the profit margins are on oil. I mean, if, if it's, you know, it takes in most pace, cases at least 20 and often 30 or $35 a barrel to produce oil. And then you've got to transport it and refine it and then transport that refined product. And then there are taxes that we pay on it. And, uh, and so each step of this way, you know, those companies, none of them are interested in taking the commodity price risk. They much rather focus on their handling responsibilities, whether it be transportation or processing, because mm-hmm. that's where they're going to make their margin. And the commodity price can completely run them over if they let that get away from them at some point. Yeah. So that, that's why we have such volume of trading in oil. And I imagine gold, in the, when you think about coming from the processed or, or mined in, in, an, in a gold mine and then transported and, and refined and then manipulated into uh, bars and then manipulated, manufactured into jewelry 
and then maybe remanufactured into high-end jewelry and then finally sold and distributed and people have to hold it for a period of time. I imagine all of those participants in that market have the same concerns that the margin I'm going to make on, on the gold is much smaller than the volatility around the price of gold. Right, right. And I think that's doubly true for copper at this point. We're talking to Wayne Pinello, riskrevenue.com. He's president and founder of Risk Revenue Energy Associates, and he is the co-author of uncertainty into strategic advantage. Have you got some questions? Oh, don't worry, I've got plenty more, but yours are more important to me. So please call 888-876-5593, 888-ROLLYE on WGN Radio. The Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union and Executive VP of the Illinois Federation of Teachers talks back to school at 718. See you bright and early, first period. Bob Surratt, Radio Chicago, WGN. The Vows, 1962 on Marquet. No, of course it didn't chart. Yeah, is there doubt in your mind? It was a B-side to have you heard, not the pop standard either. They were from L.A. They were a mixed group, three guys and a girl. And one of them was uh, Ralph Chestnut and his cousin Morris Chestnut. And if that name sounds familiar, yes, he is the father of the actor of the same name. Also, James Moore and Helen Simpson were in that group. And, uh... Yeah, Motown flirted with them for a moment and then sort of lost interest, and that was it for the uh, the vows. All right, so we're talking with Wayne Pinello, riskrevenue.com, and uh, it was a very interesting topic to me when I first uh, first saw the, the pitch on, uh, on Wayne and his book, and that is that, yes, risk can be turned into an asset, and especially in times of uncertainty like, like this, providing you, you know what you're doing. But uh, clearly I don't, and clearly, clearly Wayne does so riskrevenue.com you can find out more but Wayne in a time like this where we've got uh, the current turmoil which is uh, pretty severe we're, we're in uncharted times and we've got an election coming up that's already uh, you know completely vitriolic and all these things uh, how is this affecting and how is this going to there I am asking you for a crystal ball again but affect the market going forward here within the rest of the year I think that everybody is on pins and needles. People are going to try to make small decisions, not big decisions, as we go forward. And it's only if something forces everyone's hand. And, you know, the, the, the election, when we decide who's going to be president, there are going to be uh, – it's still going to be polarized, right? I mean, the people that lose are going to be very angry, and the people that win are – probably going to be overwhelmed with joy and uh and i don't know how that's going to impact the market but i do think that's the point remember we were talking earlier about 
you know, taking out monthly lows in the stock market. That's that's a you know, when we get to that election and the market starts to do something that you're not happy with, it's time to be very, very careful. And I'd like to use this as an opportunity to remind people that during the Great Depression, when the stock market fell, um, people fell, you know, they we all know that it fell a lot, but we don't really know how much it fell. But I want to I want to caution your your listeners that if you bought after the Great Depression, after prices had fallen fifty percent, you still lost ninety percent of your money. The market lost ninety five percent of its value. Mm. So this is the time to take things very serious. And the dilemma that we were all facing, as you pointed out just in the prior segment, is that with interest rates near near zero, I have to take more risk. Or what what is my money going to do for me? And uh, and I don't have the answer to that question. But that doesn't mean it's not an important question. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the eggs you've got in your nest, you better watch those eggs very carefully. I would think that's particularly true if you're in an advanced age. Because one of the things, and I'm sure you've heard this ad nauseum, is that if you look at the stock market at its lowest point from the Great Depression, it's certainly more than recovered over time. But when people don't have time, it becomes increasingly important that they not be in a position where they could lose 50% or 90%. Well, I I agree with you completely. I mean, um, the young people that work for me that are 30, 35 years old, they certainly should have every expectation that no matter what happens, they'll have enough time to see the market recover. Right. Because, you know, the, the world... Um, the world economy grows, one, because the population has grown, and two, because of the debt that nations carry, the easiest way for them to get out of debt is to inflate their way out of it, so that causes asset prices to rise. Mm-hmm. And until we change the economic model that all free countries are operating under, that's a good bet. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be some really nasty swings in between. And then again, to the other side of the equation, you know, I'm about your age, and uh, you know, I can afford to sit this one out. What I can't afford is to be in it and lose half my money. That's that would not. I don't have time to make it back. Right, right. And so uh, it's, you know, so those those are two ends of the of the bookend, if you will. Right, the ends of the spectrum. Right. And you've got to, as an individual, and with and again, with thinking about risk, risk is an asset. That's the first question you ask, you should ask yourself: is how much risk am I willing to take? What is my earning power over the next five, ten, thirty years? Do I have thirty years? And uh, and so that has to be a huge factor in terms of how much risk you should be willing to take. And then I would, you know, and then I would still get ready for a shockwave where you could lose half of that money, no matter what time frame you're investing. So I'm just going to throw arbitrary numbers, but you're 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 in your mid 60s, and you say, okay, um, I'm comfortably in 15% in the market or 25% in the market. Well, just as long as you know that you could lose half of that money. That's a good decision. And and obviously, if you're 30 years old, you won't have saved so much, and so maybe you do want to have 50, 60, 80%, or you've got a really good job, and at this point, because the college said you hadn't saved so much, you want to have all of it in the market, because, hell, if I lose that, that's, you know, I still have my job, I'll be fine. And, and, and that's... You, that's where understanding the risk profile of what you're doing and relating it to your personal experiences and your overall goals... That's basically when risk becomes an asset, when you tie all of those things together and you make a conscious decision that you manage. And you don't make the decision once, but you look at it today, and and with respect to stocks, you know, once a month, just go ahead, revisit. Am I comfortable with those assumptions? Am I comfortable with the way the market's behaving? Good. I don't need to change anything. 
no, it's not comfortable, maybe I need to change. Right. One of the things your book points out, of course, that's so wonderful, is that uh, risk is planned, unlike gambling, and uh, and working those plans becomes uh, becomes crucial. What, in addition to where we are right now with the government, the, the Fed, and of course the Federal Reserve is neither federal nor reserve, but nonetheless, uh, with, you know, with, yeah, with, uh, with that in mind, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're controlling a lot, of the, a lot of the situation. But where we have at this moment in time is that people who have recovered, quote-unquote, since 2008, what I see more than anything is a lot of them are amassing an obscene amount of debt. And in the process, you're seeing entire industry segments contract to almost oligopolies. I don't care whether it's radio stations or whether it's grocery stores or department stores, banks. It seems like we're, we're getting to that oligopolistic point where a few players have it all. And what they really have is an insane amount of debt. How long can this go on? The one thing I learned as an independent businessman is when your um, debt exposure exceeds your cash flow, your debt service exceeds your cash flow, it's over because you're not getting any more credit at just the point when you need it most. And so you're asking me to uh, to pick a time when that will happen? Yeah. That's impossible. But are they setting themselves up for disaster by not having the resiliency to withstand a shockwave? Yes. Couldn't agree with you more. Wayne Pinello. And in fact, I go ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. No. I was going to say. In fact, I think that after this recent COVID-19 experience, and you think about how supply chains have been interrupted for manufacturing, a lot of your viewers. I don't know if you've noticed, but some of the stores that you go to, they're not full anymore. They're only 70% stocked. My my local lawn supplier. He got a phone call. He says, "No, I don't have lawn mowers. I don't have chainsaws. I don't have weed whackers. Mm-hmm. They're all in back order, and I don't know when I'm getting them." And when you think about it, if you build a product, oh, try to buy a, a, a printer for under two hundred dollars. Good luck with that. Oh, yeah, if you, then the toll. You, you can't do it. Right. So if you produce a product that has fifty or one hundred and fifty moving parts, and one manufacturer doesn't make that part, you can't sell your product. True enough. And I think I think what's going to happen going forward is that companies are going to start focusing on resiliency rather than efficiency. They want to know that they'll always be able to produce the product. And if it costs me a little bit more to be consistent and be there for my customers when I need to be, they're, w- they're going to be willing to pay that price. Well said. Wayne Pinello, RiskRevenue.com. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm Raleigh James, and it's WGN Radio.